There are various artists and craftsmen who shift uh, during the, shall we say, mature years of their lives from one art form to another and successfully done, to have it done, because it's very rare indeed. And it's a feat that uh, Ilya Kazan has accomplished uh, quite gracefully. He's been a very distinguished career as a director of theater and films, of course, you know, of his quite remarkable films, Waterfront, and as well as his own film, America, America, and of course, his, the plays he's directed, classics, uh, The Death of a Salesman, Streetcar Named Desire, among them, as well as during his years with the group theater, one of the most fervent and passionate years in epics in American theater. And now his fourth novel, Acts of Love, and a moment, Elie Kazan, novelist, is published by Knopf. And so the program in a moment after this message. At 62, he had a full stand of black hair. His mustache was that of the warrior of old, shading the heavy lips, then going past their corners to end in a swirl. His eyebrows, equally heavy, plunged to meet over his nose, locking the face into a single expression, which was often a kind of warning that the man's patience was being tried dangerously. The eyes which had looked out over the surface of the sea so many hours for so many long years were black as black ink, not brown, that soft color. They too seemed to speak of suspicion or warn that a judgment was being reached, which, if unfavorable, might release a great store of anger. Costa was not a friendly man. When he offered friendship, it was an honor. He could have been a brigand or a revolutionary living the life of an exile high on a mountain. But what he'd been in his prime was one of a select company of sponge divers working out of the Anclote River. When the red tide killed the sponge, he turned storekeeper. His place, the three bees, bait, boats, beer, was away from where the sponge fleet had harbored in the good times on the other side of the river and west towards the edge of the gulf. Still, he had never lost the authority which sea captains develop. In his company, you felt completely safe. He recognized only one force he couldn't deal with, the mysterious will of God. There are two portraits here. There's a girl whose voice you heard singing a song of freedom, and followed by Elie Kazan, author of the book Acts of Love, reading, describing one of the key figures in the book, a heroic figure, a tragic one, brutally tragic, Costos Avaliotis. Fisherman, right. sponge fish. And right. in a sense, in that girl song and in the description of the sky, we have the two protagonists of your book, don't we? Yes, the girl is uh, just determined to try life to the full, to taste it all, to not miss anything. And uh, she's a, uh, I think, a, uh, a f I don't know, I've never read a creation of a girl yet who is, does actually try to behave like a man. Girls talk about it and so on, but this one actually tries to behave like a man with full curiosity, without fear, and without guilt. It's a girl, uh, had two cultures around. Her name was Ethel Lathy, the adopted daughter, daughter of a middle-class, upper-middle-class wasp doctor. That's or it. Or Catholic, That's perhaps, right. no. But he's, he's, no, he's a wasp doctor. I like think. so many affluent yeah. girls studs, she's yeah. homeless. In effect, yeah. Yeah. you know, for all practical yeah. purposes, she's without a home. But after uh, many adventures with different men, and she's going to marry a young Greek-American naval cadet, Aviotis Costas is his father, married Teddy. Teddy. And so it becomes suddenly a study of two different cultures, right. doesn't it? Exactly. And those two cultures, as you, as you know, we're very well studs, are in me. I'm both very American. I mean, what's more American than On the Waterfront or East of Eden? They're very American films. At the same time, I was brought up in a rigid, authoritarian, and strongly disciplined Greek household where no one doubted what was right. And my father told me that I shouldn't talk at the dinner table. Yeah, you were Anatolian. I'm Greek. Anatolian Greek, right. Anatolian right, Greek. Right, right. And here you, your background, a highly rigid one. Yes. At the same time, you are in a, uh, an Anglo-Saxon culture. Right. 
Although New York is a combination. And I'm a of damn men. curious, eager yeah. young fellow. Yeah. I was, I mean, yeah. and I still am. I think I, I think still, you, I still go out into life, you know, and try things. And well, I think you, uh, Gadge, nickname of uh, of Edie Kazan, is as we think of you. We can't get accustomed to you as a writer of novels. Think of you primarily as this very passionate, uh, dynamic director. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I've written five novels yeah, now, yeah. including America, America, yeah. which is a novel in effect. But uh, I'm going to do both now. I'm, going, I'm, going, I'm writing a book now that I'm going to make into a film, Studs. So I really am both. Talking about acts of love. And so we have a certain kind of woman in the 20th century, American, who's uh, liberated in a, in a... We're talking now about her personal behavior yes. and her relationship to guys. Hmm. Behaving as a certain kind of freewheeling man, young man would do. Furthermore, she learns from each of them. In other words, uh, her education, which is an experiential education, which is from living, she gets from the men she's with. She really uh, likes them all. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't need love to excuse sex, if you know what I mean, or to justify having sex. Sex to her is a relationship with these men. And when she's through with each one or leaves each one or is no longer with each one, she's got something from them. By the end of the book, she's become a person. She's become a really, I think, a very, very interesting and very worthy person. But uh, her father the end doesn't, you see. Now <laughs> we come know. to it, you see. Yeah. We come to uh, also a certain older man the father-in-law. She, by the way, she's, you mentioned earlier, a moment ago, in passing, you said, as many girls of certain backgrounds, she is homeless. Now she's seeking a certain kind of stability and order. Emo uh, perfect. Studs. Yeah. Really, you're smart, yeah. honestly. Uh, and that's, that's exactly so. <laughs> it. That's exactly it. She's seeking a certain kind of order. Yeah. Stability. But surety. Uh, a warmth. You know, American homes don't have that sometimes. They really don't. Uh, so many kids that come to New York that I meet, boys and girls, young men and young women who want to be actors, have run away from home, in effect, and don't, don't want to be any part of it anymore, who are seeking the warmth and the experience and the fun that they don't get at home. By the way, on that subject, we'll return to Ethel and Costas and Teddy in a moment. Uh, many, you've, you've, my God, you've auditioned thousands, and some are good, the great many may not have it. And it's not the question of... The acting is a form not so much seeking an art form as an escape. Well, often it is, or to li to uh, to live in their art what they can't live in life. Mm. That's true, and, but it's it's also it's also a profound personal escape from into an area of fantasy and an area of well, the opposite of a living a life for accumulation of money. Uh, they often come from fathers who are businessmen and from mothers who don't know what the hell to do all day long, and uh, they uh, they just looking for real living, what they call. They're curious. They're uh, full of desire. They're full of strong appetites. And uh, Ethel's a girl like that. Yeah. And so, uh, living out this fantasy as actor, actress, in many cases without too much talent, seeking it. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes though, talent is very slippery to judge. Studs. Sometimes yeah. you think this person hasn't much yeah. talent. I tell you the truth. You're looking at one now that Harold Kluman, your friend and my friend, when he first saw me, said, you may have talent for something in the theater, but it's not yeah. as acting. And he wasn't wrong, yeah. well, but uh, he didn't encourage me too much. Not as acting. I might say this parenthetical comment. We'll have the book and uh, the two aspects of your life we can talk about. The yeah. book and I saw you, I'll never forget it, in a play of, of uh, Clifford, that's one of his lesser known plays, Paradise Lost. Yeah. And you played the role of Cupid, a who? God, you remember. And I shall never forget the way you played that, as well mm. as Eddie Fuselli, the mm. manager in Golden Boy. Yes. But as Cupid, I'll never forget a certain gesture. You you have this money, blood money, and they won't take it from you. And you just hand out, I'll never forget the sense of shame yeah. and misery you felt yeah. as you want to hand out the money and they won't take it. I'll never forget that gesture. God almighty. Isn't that amazing? God, so you were a hell of an actor, as well, you were. Well, I was good yeah. in a narrow range of parts. Yeah. I think I was, because I expressed all my hostilities and all my uncertainties in those parts. But I didn't have any range, really. I only could play those that yeah. kind of But role. as a director, then, of course, you... As a director, it's different, because, of the, for example, I think uh, the fact that I was so lonely and so isolated made me understand Tennessee Williams very much better. And uh, Ethel is just part of my experience. I mean, there's a lot of me in Ethel. There is. I, I want both out of life. I want a secure, emotional, uh, stable uh, environment to live in where I'm sure of someone's love all the time. At the same time, I'm terribly curious and uh, want to be uh, disruptive and break things up all the time. So and also, I'm thinking, I, I'm going to be the amateur psychiatrist here. Now, in, in your directing these 
more classic, certainly, certainly Death of a Salesman and Streetcar and so many of the other Williams plays mm. you did. Skin and of Our Teeth, teeth was sort of a classic. Skin of Our Teeth you did too, yeah. didn't you? Cat in the Hot Tin Roof, I did. And Cat in the Hot Tin Roof, of course. I did a lot of plays. Sweet Bird. Sweet Bird of Youth. But I'm thinking, so you put son. all, as you directed, all your own insecurities were there too. As yes, well as I, I, at least I understood the author. Yeah. And I, I used to work very emotionally as a director, very intuitively. I didn't map everything out. I used to, not, not, I used to, I have a, I think I have innate sense of form, of structure. And uh, therefore, I was confident about that part of it. But uh, I would work uh, intuitively as a director very often. I think I developed naturally into a novelist. Studs. It wasn't. It wasn't. I was doing it all the time. What am I as a novelist? I'm not a great stylist, am I? But I'm a good storyteller. And storytelling is what you do in the films. You tell a story. You start them. You get their interest. You hook them, so as they say, and then you develop that interest. And you play with that interest. And you thwart that interest. And you are unpredictable. And you go on with that interest until you come to a climax that they feared would happen, and so on. That's what storytelling yeah. is. So you start right off the bat with acts of love. Yeah. There's a story developing, and uh, the, you have a feeling of, a, of an inexorable tragic end. You have did this you? feeling. Did well, you? of course, you know something's going to happen between these two very strong people. Right. Now, this girl and her father-in-law. Now, there's this, her young husband, her fiancé husband. He was not a very strong guy. No, he was not. He was not because partly his father had pulled his teeth. The, when, you, when you have a very, very strong father that's absolutely dominant, the boy has to take many years before he finds his own strength. It takes time for him to do it. He, he's what the Greeks call a good Greek boy, a good Greek boy. But uh, he's, uh, by the way, also, he's better off in American society. He's very strong, by the way, at, uh, at the San Diego Training Center. He's very strong. He's a good commander. He's a good officer in the Navy. He becomes a good officer in the Navy, I mean. He's very strong there. But in the Greek environment, mm. and above all in bed, in the personal environment mm. with his wife, he hasn't got the strength his father does. But also his father never challenging the patriarch, you see. Here again, the old man speaks of a legacy and a heritage yeah. overwhelmingly patriarchal. You know what animals have to do. An animal has to kill his father. That's what happens. Mm. I mean, uh, uh, an animal doesn't become the head of a pride of lions until the old lion has died. And there's something uh, terrible, but something justifiable about that. I mean, you have to finally one day both forgive your father and conquer him. Of course, in a failed way, this is, of course, uh, Willie Loman and Biff, isn't yes, it? Yes, right. We come right, back to right, you again. Right. So, I mean, you, know, you notice I go back and forth yeah, here. Yeah. Because Willie and Biff, the love of the old man who was faking, yeah. trying to make it you yeah. know, in, a, yeah. in phony values. And he and the felt son sorry for him. Who recognizes this guy. At the end of Act Two of another play of Arthur Miller's called All My Sons, the mm -hmm. big gesture is when the son hits the father for the first time. And that's a big yeah. moment in his yeah. life when he strikes him. It's a really dramatic yeah. moment. Joe Killer's son. Joe, God yeah. damn it. How well, do you know that? Uh, your plays are pretty powerful. Yours yeah. and Miller's and Tennessee Williams. Yeah. <laughs> if, Joe if, Killer's if, son. Joe Killer's son. As we come now back and forth, it's still the study of two cultures. Uh, in the matter of a wedding, uh, the Greek yeah. father wants it done in a Greek way. Whereas right, right. He insists. Uh, Listen, with a old Greek like that, he's a dangerous man to cross. You do not cross them. They say... There's a right way, he says, there's a wrong way, and I'm going to do things my way. And that's the way it is. And no one dares to fool around with him. Even when he hasn't got a quarter in his pocket, he still has pride. Now, that's a wonderful thing about Greeks. Now, there's, some, there's a contrast here of her father, this uh, middle class, uh, upper middle class, wealthy surgeon, uh, Dr. Ed Laffey. Right. right. And his daughter. There's an interesting relationship there, too. There was a slight touch of incestuous. Yes. Yeah, there is, yes. Yeah. Because she's adopted, there is. Mm. He hates to let her go. And I think the scene where they get drunk together is a wonderful scene. It's one of my favorite scenes in the book because I th he justifies himself. He justifies his infidelity to his wife. He explains to his daughter, which her father sooner or later has to do, why he treated her mother that way, even the adopted mother. And he justifies his, his uh, infidelities and everything. And he says, what did you want? I mean, and he tells what he thought of his, her mother. And I think it's one of my favorite scenes in the book. And of course, he's also treating his uh, adopted daughter, Ethel, here, almost as though she were, he talks as though she were his wife. Yes. Because now we come to two older women in the book, yes. and here's something rather interesting. Yeah. The mother is always ill, Emma, and she's always put down. Right, she's, uh, right. He, she's humiliated. Uh, she's not there, really, yes. as far as the father's concerned, to some extent. 
Yes. And they still keep up this atmosphere of yeah. politeness to studs. Isn't that true of many yeah. middle-class American wasp homes? They're still polite to each other. They just aren't decent to each other, but God almighty, they have no relationship at all. Yeah, but something happens. She's aware of all this all the mm. time, isn't she? Sabbath. Yes, the girl aware. is, yes. No, I mean, the mother oh, is Oh, the mother too. of what's See, happening, yes. Because at the very end, when she dies... She leaves a will, <laughs> and that's her revenge. Emma's revenge. Right, right. She? Emma's revenge. That's yeah. right. That's what it is, isn't she, it? Yes. She, 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 she's the one who inherited wealth, and she leaves all her wealth to the uh, garden club. You know, perhaps you should read her will. I'd like because to, the yeah. will is made out. The executor is interesting too. She knows the executor. She makes the executor the mistress of her husband. Of her husband, yes. Doesn't she? Yes. And page three thirteen, I think, if I got that right. Yeah. No, it's not there. It's another. Yes, it is. Here it is. Uh, this is a spot. The seemingly weak womanless. The address, yeah. uh, the the letter is addressed. The will, uh, the, the will is a letter, and it's addressed to dear Martha. And Martha is the mistress of her husband. She says, dear Martha, I want you to be the executor of my will. I haven't seen you for many years, but then I haven't seen anybody for many years, and we were once pretty good friends, you and I. I'll be brief. I don't feel that in this, my last word to the world, I need explain anything. I want you to supervise the disposal of my worldly goods as follows. First, to my husband, Ed Laffey, I leave nothing. Then, to my adopted daughter, known as Ethel Laffey, I leave only this, my love and good wishes. In the will I drew up two years ago, my bequest to her was more material. But since that time, dear Ethel has written me such a touching letter, asking that I not leave her one cent. I want to be on my own, she said, then went on about how much that meant to her. I've always felt that Edward spoiled Ethel. I'm so glad to see her trying to write herself. To Manuel and Carlita, my husband's servants, I leave the sum of $1,000. This would have been more if I hadn't felt for many years that they had been, by Edward's orders, spying on me and manipulating me. Everything else of value that I own in the world, including the house where I have lived all my married life and where I am writing what you are reading, I leave to the Saguaro Garden Club. I happen to know that they need a new headquarters and meeting place. I hope they will find our residence suitable. I must prepare you for this. This house was put, up, was put in my name by my husband, Edward Laffey, for tax reasons. He may regret that now. He may, of course, keep the furniture in his study and his bedroom. I don't want to inconvenience him. Now, if you are wondering why I have chosen you, Martha, to be the executor of a will which deprives my husband not only of his home but of the treasury bonds my brother has left me, here are two reasons. The first is that I wanted very much to do one unselfish thing with my wealth put it, however tardily, to a decent use. Since I didn't earn one cent of it, I have always felt guilty that I had it. This act relieves me. The other reason, Martha, you know and I know, but I shan't embarrass you by putting it into a letter that others must sooner or later read. I do want to say, though, that while I have been, haven't been able for several years to stay in touch with what was going on around me, I had the blessing of a few concerned friends, and I can still use the telephone. I hereby deed you the sum of $1,000 for the services I'm asking you to perform in my behalf. Do excuse the pink notepaper. Isn't that little squirrel up in the corner, darling? Well, because what it is here, she, it's her posthumous revenge yeah. for all the years yes. of humiliation and, and he, deception by her right. husband. And it hurts him. Yeah. It hurts him. But he said, I didn't know she hated me, so he says afterwards. But I'm thinking about, about uh, this guy... The contrast of the two fathers, uh, Laffey and Costas Avaliotis. Costa hasn't got a cent. He's dead broke. The other fellow gets $4,500 for an operation on someone's hand. He's loaded, or was, and uh, he's uncertain. The, the wealthy man is uncertain. The penniless old Greek is sure of his values. I mean, I've seen that a lot, and that's the truth. And doesn't that, as they meet, doesn't that have a handle to have these, uh, these disputes? Over how the wedding is going to be, doesn't quite know how to handle it. Doesn't know because the man is so rigid. He can't reach him. He can't use the ordinary arguments. He can't reach him. They come to another uh, figure in the book, Costa, who seems so sure of everything. In fact, tyrannical is what he is. Yeah. He, he speaks of the legacy of his father and right. the Greek, but it's a tyrant. And there's his wife, Nula, uh, the mother of Teddy, the yes. bridegroom. Yes. And there's Nula, who see, all these years has done the work. What does she do? Let's, here's Nula, three, four, the work she does. Just describe the work, and then what happens to her. Thanks, perhaps, to this girl whom she doesn't That's like. That's exactly right. Yeah. The girl whom she doesn't like really liberates her. Yeah. He, the girl tells her that 
uh, in this country, freedom is money. No, the phrase he used, nulla and liberation. And liberation, uh, that's right. How uh, we're on the same wavelength here. 171 is perhaps a description of what she does. Is that the day? Yes, is that it there? Nulla, just something of this sort. But there's more. There's just, just... Oh, well, this is just what, they, what yeah. she does every day. As yeah. soon as they were out of the house, her husband and, yeah. uh, and her daughter-in-law, Nula made the three beds, tidied the rooms, washed the breakfast dishes. Neither Costa nor Ethel had put their egg dishes to soak in cold water. Costa from arrogance, Ethel, Nula guessed, because she was used to servants. Nula had to scrape the plates with a knife. But what happens here to Nula, I take it in her 50s... She gets a job. Yeah, is that because of this girl who's upsetting everything. Now, yep. this girl is Ruins upsetting the, the whole balance, isn't she? Right. Of the community as well, isn't she? Right. Everybody. There's a wonderful stuff uh, about the, the old man telling the girl not to look at the men on the street. Did you remember that? Mm. That's one of my favorite things. He to says, look down. He looked down. Yeah. Throw your eyes on the ground, he says. Yeah. He said, you're looking back at men. You shouldn't do it. And the girl realizes for the first time that most girls, when a man looks at them on the street, immediately deflect their eyes, immediately yeah. turn away with their eyes. This is the old world. They still do it yeah. on the streets of Chicago. I walk along the street. There's a pretty girl coming towards me. I look at her, and naturally, she's pretty. She, For a minute, she looks at me and she immediately looks down because if she kept on looking at me she has the fear that the look will be misunderstood and that's a tough thing yeah. I mean it gets to be a damn nuisance for a woman yeah. this is through the years of course yeah. you have the old cliche of the construction workers using them as scapegoats and they yeah. shouldn't be yeah. guys are looking and so uh, the comments so for that matter just the look and so you, it's true because of the nature of our society if a girl stares back at someone the guy will automatically because of our conditioning think it's a come on they, they yeah, do. Yeah. But also, listen, the way girls dress and the way they're built and the way oh, they're so goddamn attractive and they dress so, uh, so openly and so, I don't know, freely, I mean, it, it's natural for a man to be attracted. They wouldn't like it if you weren't. We're coming I, to... Uh, I know they resent being a sex object and all that, but I, I think that uh, they're they asking for it a lot. Don't, don't sound like they disposed Judge Simonson of Madison. You know what happened to him? No. Yeah, Judge Simonson? No. Madison, uh, Madison uh, some young kid uh, raped this girl or was accusing him trying to rape her, and uh, he acquitted him automatically because they're asking for it. So don't sound like no. him. No. Because... Uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's natural for me to be responsive. I see a, a pretty girl dressed uh, that way. I respond to it. What the hell? I, it would be bad if I didn't. I, I, I don't... Uh, I wouldn't... Suppose they them. whistled at you. <laughs> I, would, I, I might like it. <laughs> We're coming to... to uh, well, we'll just take a pause right now. Yeah. We're talking to Elia Kazan and uh, the novelist Acts of Love, published by Knopf. And it's, a st as you say, it's a, a story. And you are a storyteller, which is basically right. the work of a, any right. writer. Right. So we'll resume in a moment after this message. But now, but yeah, now you see, you look, you, you look at a girl coming yes, on. Are we, are we, are we, sure, we're are we on the air now? Yeah. Uh, well... Uh, I was going to talk off the air for a minute, but I'll talk on the air. You, you, uh, there, there, girls really dress to present themselves. They, they present themselves in the way they dress, and they should. I mean, I think uh, sex connection is one of the uh, most, you know, important thing in life. It's not unimportant. And girls dress because they want men to be attracted to them, and they succeed in attracting them. Now, what men do about that is, is, is another matter. I mean, rape and all that is terrible, or to whistle at them and to annoy them and all that. But the fact that, you, that they catch your eye is inevitable, natural, and correct. Well, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not a woman, but I'm, I'm sure the dress is also dressing for a certain quest for beauty. Uh, to look at yourself, to feel good with something flowered or some color or some ribbon or some... It need not be always for the guy. I'm not sure of that. Mm -hmm. I, I see. This is our egocentricity. This is the male egocentricity, you see, ego that's there. I'm not sure. Uh, it'd be interesting. To, uh, I'd like to ask women some women about well, that in a candid moment. You yeah, better, you, why don't I'd you do it? Before you talk well, any I have, further, no, I, I have asked. I have uh, I've <laughs> talked to a lot of them. They, they, they'll tell you. But you do it sometime when you've got right. one in here. Talk to I think there's also, uh, a, why does a guy dress? Since you've got Ethel behaving like a man, let's stick to this. All thing. right, I'll just say, right, why, why do does a guy dress? dress? I yeah, think, I a, think a man way. dresses in a business suit. Now, you dress casually as I do. A man dresses in a business suit to inspire confidence, to make, uh, to make people who look at him say, well, well he, he could be trusted in business. He could be trusted with uh, my investments. And uh, he could be head of a firm. He's, you know, they, they dress 
to present themselves in a certain way, just as women do. But the, the, uh, the ideal they're presenting is one of firmness, honesty, integrity, reliability, and so on. That's why he dresses. But a fellow like you, I wouldn't trust you with my, uh, I mean, if I didn't know your studs. But if no, I, you, you do know me. I, I wouldn't trust you I wouldn't trust you, you with your, I, I wouldn't trust you. me with my investments, right? No, I, well, with your investments, I'd be the last person in the world. Well, that's why I'm in the very last way. I, I'm at the Drake Hotel, the elevator full of these fellows that are dressed that way. They're, they don't impress me, but I know why they dress that way. But then, are the guys dressed just to feel good, to look good? I mean, to, to feel easy, yes. I imagine. That's the way I dress. Uh, but also, I, I imagine, as is everybody, I think no one lives in a vacuum. You know, we can go off the deep end on this, too. But I think women may not simply dress, not alone, not only to, to be attractive to men. It's suppose, a profound suppose, preoccupation. Uh, I suppose we were on the Isle of Lesbos for the moment. I suppose the, it, and, uh, and suppose... It's just women and women. I think it's stressed to just... we we'll have to go into that sometime. Mm. Let's go back to Ethel. This okay. is not unrelated, by the way, to no, Ethel and no. to Costas. No. Because she is behaving like we expect a certain kind of freewheeling, not quite responsible guy to behave. I am not going to be falsely modest. I'm not going to be falsely retiring. Yeah. I'm going to be on the level with men the way men are with me. That's what she's saying. And I'm not going to be demure, falsely demure, hypocritically demure when I don't feel demure, uncurious when I'm mm. curious. Now, that's their right, and that's really liberty to behave. Yeah. And animals do that in the animal world. The female lioness does that. And they, they are open about their sexuality, and that's what she determines to be. But defying certain cultural patterns. That's naturally. correct. And that's what ruins her. That's what gets in, her down. In, in this instance, too, the accepted pattern in Anglo-Saxon society, and very definitely Right. That in the Greek community, right? Where at least in the past, I, I, I doubt the, whether Melina McCourty would take that view. No, well, well you know, looking did down. you ever see her? No, it's the same thing. But if you go to Tarpon Springs today, Tarpon Springs is all tourists, as Costa says in the book. It's all Americanized. Ethel, I like Ethel a lot because she's uh, independent and fearless and curious. She's one of my favorite characters I've ever dealt with in films or anything else. A touch of you and Ethel, Harold Clerman said. That's what Clerman yeah. said, yes. Harold Clerman said there's a lot of you and Ethel. And, uh, are you having you read again? No, I was thinking again because he's I also a study of the book. work that yeah. Costas does. He's a sponge fisherman. We're talking about a certain community in Florida. Oh, right, Tarpon Springs, Florida, yeah. yes. yes. You know that community. Oh, I've been yeah. there well, 50 times. And so this is, we're talking uh, now Almost about, a native. Yeah, so we're talking now about... About work, aren't we? Yes. The work that is done there. Yes. Well, he, he yeah. respects his father. His father was a great sponge fisherman c captain. He was captain of a boat. And Costa is entertaining his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his daughter's-in-law family, his in-laws-to-be. And he spoke of the sponge, what it was, how it lived, what it ate, how it reproduced. He talked about the red tide that had come in and for 10 years killed the whole industry. He talked about the advantages of the natural sponge over the synthetic. He made Mrs. Laffey a present, another present, a box carefully wrapped and tied in fine blue paper, and told her what it was, placing it carefully at her feet. Two perfect sponges for your bath, he said. I look over a thousand piece. Then he spoke of his father and of his father's grave in the yard where the old Greek Orthodox church had once stood. It had burned down, arson suspected, but all the Greeks in Tarpon Springs still considered the ground haloed. On his father's stone marker was an oval-framed photograph, not as he'd been when he died, but the way he looked in his prime, the very strongest photograph of the man they had, so he'd be remembered as he'd been before age reduced him and death cut him down. Then he told them something that even Teddy didn't know, that every other Sunday he took potted flowers, blue nasturtiums or white lilies to the gravesite, left them there on top of the mound which covered his father's body, and then after a fortnight took the old flowers home, dug a hole for the bulbs, filled it with dehydrated cow manure mixed with loam and bark mulch, Costa went into every particular, transplanted the flowers to his own yard, to keep his father's memory alive. Isn't that beautiful, that yeah. the way of dealing with your, yeah. with your dead? I think that's wonderful. The, 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 the reverence they have for their ancestors 
You know, we, we just, so many of our old folks are in old folks' homes. We sort of get rid of them. I've been to a lot of old folks' homes, by the way, and they look like disposal plants to me often. I know someone is paying those bills, and that someone is probably their children. But no Greek father, or grandfather, I mean, dies alone in an old folks' home. He's in his family's home when he dies. Well, we're talking about extended families in many societies, uh, yeah. so Greek in many, in many third world societies, and that's what the, the idea of of the extended family, the home, several generations are there. And that is what is missing in what is known as the nuclear family. Nuclear family, yeah. So you talked about it. But also there is a danger here, and in fact the book deals with that danger, yes. of over-worship. Yes. That is worship to excess of the dead. Right. And it becomes a kind of a, a necrophilia in a sense. It's, it's the, his father forever and ever long dead, and therefore he wants to make the living abide by the code that is long since gone. Absolutely right. There's a danger in it. Like most things in life that are strong and even good, there's a good side and a bad side to them. There isn't just one way. The book is full of ambivalences like that. You say, Ethel, I admire her very much, but there's also something destructive as hell about her and self-destructive, isn't there? Yeah, there's a also, very self-destructive side. Oh, the self-destruct in him and in, yeah. in her and in Kostas. Right. The, because these are the two figures, and, and the battle right. will be joined as it is toward the end. Towards the end. We haven't talked about the variety of, the variety is the word, Heinz variety of men whom Ethel has encountered. Yes. And all variety, there's a guy named Ernie, and I guess he's the kind of figure you come across, particularly in, in uh, Southern California. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Ernie. Yes. Uh, the surfboard kid. Yes. Well, he's uh, the son of a very rich boy. man who's decided to live like a penniless man and he lives by himself and he never locks his daughter door and he has no morality whatever and doesn't believe in any morality and uh, she likes him because of his carelessness he's the opposite of uh, of her father and then there are, there's a, uh, a Mexican she meets in Mexico she's in Mexico for a while and he's a uh, narcissist who who uh, keeps looking at himself in the mirror and she she's fond of all these men that's the odd part of it there's a psychoanalyst a psychiatrist that she meets who's full of uh, high phrases and very direct action she she learns from him the thing about ethel is that because she lacks guilt or has not developed guilt she is able to enjoy and learn from all these experiences with the different men she's with I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating catalog of uh, different men and different attitudes of men, and it's the first time sort of men's sexuality has been presented that I know of from a woman's point of view. She describes what she can tell about each man's character by the way his orgasm is, and she talks. I think it's a very interesting part of the book that she goes over these men and remembers what they're like through their how they were in the height of their love experience. And then of course there's Teddy. Now we come to Teddy, her husband. Yeah. Costa's son. And this is rather interesting. I think I'll just take a cough here. Time out. <coughs> <coughs> Want some water? Want some coffee? No, it's okay. Now we have Teddy. And he accepts. And therefore, one of the officers says he make a very good naval man. So an interesting comment here about, uh, about military, navy, isn't it? Accepting yes. orders without questioning. Accepting yes. his father's word. Right. And that's indeed his a good naval officer. And the guy saying, I'm not, I don't mean this as a compliment either, says this rather cynical. Right, right. You remember offer. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is that the I think the the armed forces are the are the extension, the logical extension of the corporation man. There's no bigger yeah. corporation yeah. than the armed forces. Yeah. And that you are told what to believe, what to do, you are programmed every day, you have the security of being guided every day of your life. If you carry out your orders, you're okay. And that's a kind of emotional security. He replaces his father with the Navy, put it that way. But because of uh, this marriage, because of this ill-starred one, it is Ethel and Teddy, and the old man wanting tradition that is being defied, quite obviously, by this, by this young woman, he wants his name. Because now something's happening as she's living in the Greek community. Right. They're looking upon her yeah. sconce, aren't they? Yes. He's That's behaving non-Greek-like. Non-Greek-like, non, yeah. uh, not proper. Not, yeah. The old man keeps saying proper way, proper way, proper way. He says that phrase 20 times in the book. And there's a proper way to behave, and she's violating it. And slowly he's tempted to turn against her. But he's, he's also at the same time attracted to her. Because that's the, that's the, um, the central ambivalence of the mm -hmm. book, that he disapproves of her and is attracted to her. And she to him. And she to him. Yeah. And so we come toward uh, 
what seems to be inexorable, the ending of the book. And this is the book by Ida uh, Kazan, Acts of Love, published by Knopf. I thought, we'll, we'll return to the book, but I thought, Tyrone, your own thoughts now, since you're in the world of the writer, at the same time you are a man of the theater and film as well. Mm -hmm. Thoughts about, if I may ask this for the moment, uh, this is a, uh, an ex you know, a detour, Fine. and yet we'll come back to the main role. The, uh, Theater Today, uh, you were saying something earlier about theater of the 30s, not nostalgically, just realistically. Right. That was an exciting epoch, was it not? Yes, time because the theater, theater dealt in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. There were th about uh, three decades there, where theater dealt was an expression of what the author felt about society. By the way, I liked your musical very much. I mean, it's a shame it's off, because there you are talking about real people and their lives and their problems, and that's the kind of thing the theater lacks today for me. That is, there's awful lot of stuff, but there's very little that is uh, thematic, that is an expression of the author's feeling about life and about the society and about our time and so on. Theater, one uh, is not just an entertainment, it's not something to fill in time between dinner and bed. It's something that should be a great force in the life of a society. It should make them see themselves more clearly, society more clearly, it should inspire them, it should be a lesson to their children. It, theater can be at its best an enormous force. Look how often you refer to the plays that yeah. I've directed, how, how much they meant to you. Now think of those, I, by the way, I'm glad you brought up that subject some of the indelible experiences of my life that affect me, by the way, in ways I, I, I don't at the moment understand. I mentioned that scene you talked about in the early Arthur Miller play, All My Sons, mm -hmm. when the son sees his father's betrayal of a son's own colleagues. Mm -hmm. This guy was a maker of airplanes that were defective during the war. And, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, the brother died, all his sons, all my sons, all my sons. dealing with the responsibility they were Death all of a salesman, of course, Biff and uh, Willie, uh, let alone Streetcar Named Desire. And, and for that matter, Archibald McLeish's J.B., which you directed. Right. So variety, is it not? And yet, it's an experience that is that you say that They all is, meant something to me, and but I tried it was to more. Now we come to something that your colleague, perhaps the most perceptive of all drama critics, who was director group, the Harold Clorman, consistently says, he cannot tolerate mere entertainment. Right. It's more than that. Well, so deep entertainment about. is something that entertains you, that really affects your life. By the way, speaking of Death of a Salesman, that's the only play that I've ever seen where men sobbed. I used to sometimes go in at the end of Death of a Salesman just to hear the response of men, and it's the only time I've heard men sobbing in the theater. That play cut so deep into man, man's pain about his eldest son, about their children. And uh, that was the great thing about that play for me. But anyway, there's very little theater like that. There's very little theater that's, uh, well, it's a, it's a tough word, well, serious. How would, how would you explain that? Well, because all the good people, I think all the good young people today are going into films. I think, uh, the, uh, by the way, film is the most natural, most natural uh, 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 way of, of communicating. I'm speaking to you. There's a picture of you. You're listening. Your hands are behind your mm -hmm. back. I say something you don't agree with about well, the way women dress. Mm -hmm. I cut to you. Mm -hmm. You speak. That's audio. The picture is video. Then I, you cut back to me, and I'm disagreeing with you. This is my expression. That's, mm -hmm. that's video. It's a perfectly natural thing to do. What you see, movement that you catch, yeah. what you hear, it's almost childishly simple and basic. That's what it is. And everybody, all the young people today, you know, Francis Ford Coppola 30 years ago would have been writing plays. He's a wonderful dialogue writer. He's making films. Martin Scorsese would have been writing plays. Now he's making films. So that's what's happened. Yeah. And uh, my son is, uh, wants to be in movies. That's all they want. Both my sons write movies. So that's what's happened. All your sons. All my sons. Now I have gone back from the movies and the theater. I'm one. I'm. I don't know. I don't know anybody else who's done this. Do you? Studs has gone back to novel writing after. I said to Irwin Shaw. Irwin Shaw is a close friend of mine. I said, Irwin, I said, you. You remember I was a director and I was. I was rather successful as a director and so forth and so forth. I said, you must be pretty surprised. I said to have me turn around and start writing novels. He said, not surprised. Appalled. Mm -hmm. I mean, he looks at he yeah. also looks at movie making as the thing, you know, as the contemporary thing. And yet, I suppose there is flesh and blood. There is the moment. That moment is there not in in theater, 
that is the flesh and blood actor on stage. There is that aspect of yeah. it, too. Each one has something particular and extraordinary about it. Acts of love, I can take excursions, I can take detours, I can yeah. say what I want, I can make comments. I can't do that in a movie. A movie should be unilinear. Yeah. It should start here and go to there. On the theater, I'm, I'm a it's rhetorical. I'm, I'm trying to get over the uh, themes and words of the author. But here, I'm out, Acts of Love, I'm by myself. I'm out on the end of a limb, and I'm glad to be there. Yeah, basically, this is, again, we come to the, the work of a novelist, of a writer. It's wholly his own. Yes. It's wholly his own. Yes. Whereas, there are always the colleagues involved. There's the actor. Is there not actor? Or in films, of course, so many technical... Theater is uh, a completely collaborative medium. Yeah. Theater is altogether collaborative. Yeah. Scene designer, costume designer, light man, music, Theodoraki's music, and so on. That's yeah. all. Yeah. That's all collaborative. The movies are even more so. Yeah. Movies is a group venture. Yeah. It's half a construction gang, half a safari. I mean, everybody. You got a gang of a hundred men who are all looking to you every morning. What do we do today? What do we do today, Chief? Here we come up. Where do I put the camera? Here. And that's a big yeah. gang, and it's great fun. Therefore, you know, it's exhilarating, right? This is you, of course. Uh, I'm thinking of. Uh, on the waterfront, of course, as well as uh, a Zapata. I'm thinking of the films that have huge, yeah, huge companies and mm -hmm. epics. You know. 120, yeah. 125 people on Zapata in Roma, Texas, in yeah. 110 degrees of heat. Yeah. And we were making that film down there with Marlon Brando. With non-actors as well. A lot of non-actors, yeah. an awful lot of non-actors, yeah. a lot of awful just horsemen and people yeah. down there, marvelous people. Right? And so there is a wholly, as you say, uh, collaborative. And, That's right. You know, but I don't know, uh, Studs, I don't think you can live uh, all of your life in the same thing. I've done films, I've done plays, now I'm writing books, I'm going back to films, I'm gonna write books, I'm gonna do what I feel like. Coming back to our theme, we, we really touched on the book, there's no point telling about the ending of it, it's, it's there. There is the confrontation, there is the challenge between right. Costa Vasiliatis, is it? Avaliotis. Avaliotis. Costa Avaliotis. And as difficult a uh, time Laffey has pronouncing the name. Laffey. So would, uh, oh, yes, he has a terrible time pronouncing it. Avaliotis yeah. and Ethel. Yes. His daughter. Ethel Laffey. Laffey. It's an old-fashioned name you chose for the heroine, by the way. I Ethel. did. You know, there was a lot of objection to that. Uh, you know, uh, the one of the girls in uh, one of the girls in Bob Gottlieb's office. That's my publisher. Said, "You're not going to publish a book with a with a uh, with a heroine named Ethel, are you?" And he told that to me, and I said, that's right, that's her name, her name is Ethel. I said, she doesn't like her name, her name embarrasses you. And then I thought, how many people I know whose first name embarrasses them? And then they, get, they change the first name, they no, call Ethel themselves Gadge or Studs like, or something. Uh, like, like Hazel or Grace, uh, is he? And instead of, uh, oh God, all these new names. <laughs> the mother loved Ethel Barrymore, that's why she called her that. Ah, that was it. Yeah, the mother yeah, loved Emma, Ethel Barrymore. Ethel right. Barrymore. Yeah. I so, directed her once. Did you direct, in what? In, in what? a movie called Pinky. The first, uh, Pinky was the first movie that used that, the word nigger on oh, the screen. Oh, that dealt with miscegenation, didn't yeah, yeah. Pinky did. Yeah. And that was in the days when he was the white actress to do uh, a girl yeah, of color, yeah, wasn't it? Right. A girl of yeah, color, the phrase used then. We were just breaking ground, yeah. and it wasn't was a very bold movie. No, it wasn't. But it was bold all. for the time. Yeah. I mean, Gentleman's Agreement. Come and think of you directed Gentleman's Agreement. It was, it, you know, now I look at it, it looks like, <clears> uh, it looks like a very conservative yeah. movie, but it was the first one, that, the first movie ever said Kike. At the first, yeah, it's funny, these, these early attempts, you were involved in a good many of them. Gentleman's Agreement, the first dealing with the theme of anti-Semitism. Yeah, anti-Semitism. And it, that it was, was everywhere in middle class life in America, yeah. and it still is in many places. Yeah, but it was, a, it was a, at the moment, seemed to be a daring film of, yes. of Ms. Hobson's. Uh, Laura Hobson. Laura Hobson's yeah. novel, that's right. That's now. right. Seemed to be. And it was at the time. It really was at the time. There were, there were a lot of Jews that, that asked, asked Daryl not to make it. Daryl sent Morse Hart to a... To this is Zanuck, the producer. Daryl Zanuck, mm. yeah. He sent Morse Hart. Morse Hart was the author. He sent him to a, a meeting of uh, around a lunch table at Warner Brothers. Of the and, screenplay. Uh, yeah, uh, no, author, and uh, no, a lot of those fellows... Morse Hart authored the screenplay. Wrote the screenplay. Novel. Yeah, and uh, Morse went down there, and I said, what happened, Morse? He said, they all said, please don't do it. We Jews are getting along fine in Hollywood now. Why bring up the subject? question is silence, isn't it? Silence, that's uh, right. That's uh, exactly right. Uh, that's right. I think this book, Acts of Love, is very disruptive because it challenges a lot of the values. It, 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 uh, it raises a lot of questions about what's, what's really worthwhile and what isn't, and what should a girl be like, and can a girl like Ethel survive still? Can a girl like Ethel survive still? There is a, there is a murder, there is a trial, 
There are acquittals. Yes. At the very end, perhaps read the last four or five lines. Oh, well. And that's kind of funny. You know, it's kind of ironic. At the very end, uh, the oh. town goes on as it Ethel, was, and people yeah, have the forgotten. The town goes right on as it was, and her little son is happy, and so on, so on. And then the author says, these, and uh, uh, everybody's getting along fine. Ethel's dead, and everybody's getting along great. And the author says, these are the bounties Ethel left behind. So she endures by a few gratefully remembered. Her photographs, the last physical evidence of her existence, softened by the chemistry of time. People who look at them wonder how anyone so fair could have done so many terrible things. Mm. Acts of love. Acts of love. Acts of love, but not act, because it is. Well, there's ir irony. You know, when he yeah. kills her, when he kills her, the author says it was an act of love. Yeah. That's the irony part yeah, of it. The author is Elia Kazan. <laughs> And uh, Knopf, the publishes the book, and it's indeed a storyteller's story. And we'll have as an epilogue, a double up, a couple of Greek songs. Oh, wonderful. And the very first one we open with, by the way, is not accidental. Klefteria, Greek for freedom. Freedom. Yeah. And it was a woman's voice singing it. And yes. so yes. it seems as though it could be Ethel in, yes. a, in a different yes. context. And so we close with a couple of Greek songs and Ilya Kazan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Studs. I appreciate the interview a lot. Ta avrà 
Oh, God, I see your grief. 